Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosley. It's college in the COVID era. Mandatory testing upon arrival, school-issued masks, and a bag packed with necessities for students ordered to self-quarantine or isolate. It's September. That should mean students are headed back to school. Amid the COVID-19 pandemic, however, the return to classrooms has prompted anxiety and debate. Tonight, an alarming CDC prediction that deaths in the U.S. could reach up to 205,000 by mid-September. Colleges and universities in at least 17 states are reporting new COVID cases. There is growing concern that high school and college students may be spreading the virus. Students, parents, and teachers are protesting in close to three dozen cities today. They are demanding school buildings only reopen when science says it is safe. How can students and teachers resume learning without risking infection? What do students lose when their lessons shift online? For colleges and universities, there is another pressing matter, survival. Many universities and colleges in the U.S. don't know what the upcoming school year will look like. Some 40% of parents in the U.S. are considering delaying college for their college-bound high school seniors. And the new reality is that some schools may not be able to field a freshman class and survive this disruption. When the COVID-19 crisis hit the United States in March, colleges and universities across the country quickly shifted to remote learning. Many including Ivy League institutions and the University of California system, say they will continue this approach for the fall. But others can't afford another semester of remote learning. For some, it could mean closing their doors permanently. Of the 2,800 schools, the median endowment is $7 million, meaning a lot of these schools, if 20 or 30% of the students don't show up, which the surveys say they are planning not to do in fall, we could see 20 to 40% of universities start a death march similar to what department stores have done. How did U.S. colleges and universities become so vulnerable? And what does the COVID-19 crisis mean for their future? Hello, Robert. Hello. Robert Kelchin is here to help answer these questions. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm all right. A professor at Seton Hall University, Robert studies higher education finance, accountability, and financial aid. He joins us from South Orange, New Jersey. Robert, I wanted to start with some background. Where do most colleges and universities in the United States get their money? Colleges and universities get their money from a number of sources. The most obvious one is money from tuition. But colleges also get revenue from having students on campus. They get revenue from the state government, if, especially if they're public. And they may get revenue from an endowment or donations. And then some colleges that have things like a hospital can get revenue from that source as well. Even before the pandemic, many colleges in the U.S. were in trouble. Enrollment across the country had fallen by more than 11% in the last decade. And public funding had dwindled. A recent report by Forbes gave 72% of all schools only a C grade for financial health. And yet, even as university budgets have tightened, costs for students have ballooned. If you feel like tuition rates have risen faster than just about everything else, you are right. The higher costs of higher education is creating a stranglehold on mobility for some, and many say it's only getting worse. Two-thirds of all jobs in America require at least some college. 
This is the standard now. College tuition in the U.S. has more than doubled since the 1980s, rising much faster than family incomes. People aren't making more money, and college is objectively way more expensive. Student debt now exceeds $1.5 trillion. Nearly 70% of students had to take out loans to make it through college. On average, each student graduated about $30,000 in debt. For most private colleges and a number of public colleges, the majority of the revenue comes from students, whether it's tuition or housing and dining dollars. In order to get more revenue, they have to try to increase tuition, but students and their families are getting close to the breaking point where they don't want to pay any more. So colleges are stuck in a situation where their revenue is not increasing as fast as their costs are. So costs like taking care of employees' salary, especially benefits, and taking care of often aging facilities. A lot of, especially small private colleges, were struggling to survive as is. And then for public colleges, state funding has been pretty solid the last few years, but on a per-student basis, it's been on a downward trend over most of the last three decades. And both of those, the revenue side and the expenditure side, have been challenges for colleges before this pandemic, and now those challenges are only magnified. Like Robert says, the COVID-19 pandemic has made the situation much worse. New research suggests that public funding of colleges and universities may drop by 10% this year and by up to 25% next year. Meanwhile, students are asking for tuition breaks. As many schools announce plans to charge full tuition while continuing with remote education, some are questioning what those tuition dollars are actually paying for and if it's worth it. Meanwhile, students are rebelling against colleges and universities nationwide demanding tuition refunds as classes move online. Students at 25 United States universities, including Drexel University in Philadelphia, filed lawsuits against their schools. They're not willing to shell out $50,000 for anything less than a full college experience. I want to turn to the student experience. What will on-campus instruction look like for students this fall? This fall, get ready for social distancing, masking, and plexiglass. At many colleges, some students will be in person, other students will be joining the class online. And then the professor has to manage both groups of students at the same time. Outside the classroom, at some colleges, you may not be able to eat in the dining halls at all. You may get takeout the whole time. You may not have study spaces in the library. You're basically expected to go to class and then either go back to your dorm room or go back to your off-campus housing. And it will be a lonely experience for many students this fall. It's unlikely to be much better for those facing another semester of online learning. And so those students who are either forced to take classes remotely or else opt to take classes remotely, what will they be missing out on, especially if their university campuses are closed? You don't get the same in-person interaction with your peers. Out-of-class engagement is going to be difficult. But it's also worth noting the alternative of in-person may not be reasonable, and you're still getting the academic credits. You're just not getting the other things that go along with the college experience that people also like. Some students are even reconsidering their plans to attend university next semester at all. According to a recent survey from Inside Higher Ed, 28% of returning students say they aren't sure whether they will go back. Will this push college budgets past the point of no return? I have to say, looking at this from a student's perspective, 
what I see is a lot of losses and not a whole lot of gains. Many have actually opted to sit out this semester, as have schools with big endowments. But a lot of schools lack that cushion. What happens to those schools? Do they fail? Some of those colleges that try to go in person but can't make it through the semester may end up closing mid-semester. And that's my greatest fear because that's the most devastating to students and employees alike. But the more common outcome for these financially struggling colleges is more pay cuts, more furloughs, more layoffs, and more reductions in services for students as they try to get through however long this pandemic lasts. Discussions about higher education in the age of COVID-19 have tended to focus on students. But faculty and staff are also struggling. In fact, for them, the worst may be yet to come. We just got in some new information in the last couple of hours about professors and programs impacted by layoffs at St. Edwards University in South Austin due to the COVID-19 financial strain. Washington University School of Medicine announcing it will furlough about 1,300 employees. 4,000 more furloughs were announced, bringing the total up to 5,500. Hundreds of University of Dayton employees are being furloughed. Johns Hopkins University says it expects to furlough and lay off workers due to budget shortfalls. So I'm going to put my professor hat on. I actually am a professor at Bard College. Professors actually put in more work to do online remote learning. I mean, I've, I can't even tell you how many hours of online training that I've had to sit through. And it is abundantly harder to actually teach online. What happens to professors in this situation? There is a lot of frustration. There's a lot of burnout right now. I'm sitting here on day two of the academic year. Classes haven't even started yet. And it's already exhausting. And we got a pay cut and we lost support staff members. It's going to be a challenging year for morale for everyone because students want more of an experience, but there are fewer faculty and staff. They've taken pay cuts and they're all exhausted. And there will be a lot of tensions about what students and families are expecting versus what's reasonable to provide, especially when employees are struggling with taking care of their own families. Hiring freezes, pay cuts, and layoffs also raise serious questions for the next generation of professors. So what happens to PhD programs that are churning out all of these professors? I hope they can find postdocs for many of those positions or that they already have a job. The academic job market is looking to be annihilated this year. It was annihilated at the end of last year, and it may be three, four, five years before the academic job market returns to normal. And even then, I have questions about whether colleges will be hiring as many tenure-track faculty members because they can get good people on short-term contracts, and they don't want to commit to the long-term costs of tenured faculty. So we've got students demanding refunds for semesters of online learning, faculty taking pay cuts and struggling with burnout, and colleges and universities facing drastic budget shortfalls. The question now is, can the traditional higher education business model survive the pandemic? If a semester of online classes isn't worth paying for, 
students and institutions may need to start asking themselves what the college experience actually has to offer. How important is on-campus instruction to what colleges are selling? It's important for residential colleges in particular. If students are going there to live on campus, they want the in-person experience. It's been a part of residential colleges for decades that you would send your children off to college at age 18. They'd come back fully formed at age 22 with a bachelor's degree and this wealth of experience. But that's not the typical experience for students. We only have about 12% of undergraduates who live on campus right now. But for colleges, those students are really important because those are the ones most likely to pay full price. Also, that revenue from housing and dining is crucial for colleges to help balance their budgets. But prior to the pandemic, we had about 40% of undergraduates who took at least one class online in the last year. Online is here to stay. And it's the only way for at least some students to access higher education. But that's not the way that students attending traditional colleges think of their entire college experience. And those are the types of colleges that may see students go to a less expensive option for a semester, like a community college, instead of paying normal or close to normal tuition rates for an online experience. As Robert points out, In deciding what to do this fall, not all students have the same considerations. Those from wealthier backgrounds are more likely to be able to afford full tuition, regardless of the challenges that arise. But lower-income students often rely on financial aid, including grants, scholarships, and student loans. The coronavirus pandemic is really hurting college affordability for many students and their families. A new poll finds that among American high school students, more than half of them have a parent or guardian who lost a job, has been laid off or furloughed, and more than a quarter of them say that now their first choice for college may no longer be affordable for their family. This may complicate decisions about what a college degree is worth. Student loans are a real challenge for millions of Americans right now. And students from the lowest income families often hesitate to take out any loans or they only take out as little as they can because if you're also first generation in college, you may not know the difference between a student loan, which you could say is good debt, versus a credit card loan at 30%, which you could say is bad debt. So there are people who are scared of debt people who haven't had that experience, and they want to spend as little money as possible and get through. They may not care about all the bells and whistles of that residential college experience. They would like to get through with as little debt as possible. And a challenge for colleges now is if their revenue coming in is less, they have less money to give out in financial aid to help support these students. And that's a real concern. Most colleges are aggressive in trying to recruit what are called full-pay students, students who pay the full sticker price or maybe get a very small scholarship. But that's a shrinking group of students, and increasingly that's been international students, which many of them aren't coming to campus this year. And one of the reasons why more colleges haven't cut their tuition prices for fall is they rely on tuition dollars from students paying close to full price to help subsidize that financial aid for students who can't afford to attend otherwise. So the irony is that the wealthier kids who can actually afford to pay full 
are also the ones that can afford to stay at home or take a semester off. And it's the lower income kids that actually are getting the bad end of the deal. Yeah, there's been a lot of conversation about the idea of a gap year where you do something other than college this year. That's really something that only wealthy families can do. A gap year for a lower income student may be working full time at minimum wage if they can get a job. But more commonly, if they're going to a four-year college, a gap year might be they stay at home and go to the local community college to save money. I actually want to touch on community colleges. Higher education doesn't just mean four-year schools. Between 33 and 44 percent of U.S. undergraduates attend two-year community colleges. Over half of low-income students start there. How are those schools likely to fare during the pandemic? It's still unclear at this point because community colleges see students registering at close to the last minute. And this is something that we normally see, but the pandemic makes enrollment less certain. At the end of the day, as the fall semester gets going, I think enrollment's going to look pretty good at many community colleges because they're an inexpensive option close to home. But in the longer term, the outlook is more challenging. State funding is likely to take a tumble and enrollment is likely to significantly increase at community colleges once public health improves, because community college enrollment always increases during recessions, and we're headed for a very deep recession. Enrollment in higher education tends to rise when the economy is faltering. This isn't hard to explain. Yes, a college education costs money, But if it means getting a leg up in a tough job market, it's a worthwhile investment. At the height of the last recession from 2007 to 2010, university enrollment increased by nearly 16%. Will the COVID-19 pandemic result in a similar spike? To some extent, it's hard to compare the pandemic to the Great Recession because in the Great Recession, students were still on college campuses. During the pandemic, we don't have that. Some students may choose to wait to go to college or take fewer courses while everything is online because they want that in-person experience. But once public health returns to normal, then it will look more like the Great Recession in terms of what students are looking for and when they're going to college. The challenge is the financial hit to colleges will be likely orders of magnitude deeper under this pandemic than happened during the Great Recession. And the wild card here is, does Congress step in and provide money? It looks unlikely this fall, but it could happen after that. But even if colleges do receive some governmental aid, it's unlikely to resolve their financial troubles. After all, by many accounts, higher education has long been an ailing business model one shock away from a crisis. Many seem to hope that technology, especially online learning, can cushion the blow. For example, the pandemic has revived interest in the massive open online course, or MOOC. They're affecting the way teachers teach and the way students learn. That's because MOOCs can fill a classroom with a billion brains. And they might help college students save money and graduate faster. Coursera, one of the biggest MOOC platforms, added 10 million new users from mid-March to mid-May. That's seven times the pace of new signups than the previous year. So, Robert, 
we've talked about why colleges' current switch to online learning has been viewed as less valuable than an on-campus experience. But are there other ways to use online learning to increase revenues? Here, I'm actually thinking about the example of MOOCs. Could MOOCs help solve colleges' financial troubles? Probably not in most cases. MOOCs are not big revenue generators. They were supposed to redefine higher education eight or 10 years ago. They've got a lot of people signed up. They tend to be people who already have bachelor's degrees, already doing pretty well, picking up an extra skill. And completion rates are often under 10% for MOOCs. A lot of colleges are trying to grow their own online enterprises, but it's incredibly competitive. You have University of Phoenix, you have Western Governors, you have Maryville, Southern New Hampshire, Arizona State, all these online behemoths trying to get in there, and they can advertise like crazy. It's hard for another college to start and compete like that. And what about big tech? People have actually speculated that these companies will play a big role in what a post-pandemic world might look like. And obviously, we're doing this interview over Skype, online classes are happening over some sort of online platform. And we've seen how a lot of these companies are already closely tied to higher education. Are we going to see a further integration between big tech and higher education? I, I think somewhat, but that integration is already there to a large extent that colleges have been using these programs, using these services for many years. This this may create pressure to consolidate the number of companies in the area. And also a key consideration about this is the cost for colleges, that they may look at trying to eliminate some of these additional services as soon as they can because they're expensive and their budgets may not be able to handle them. Though colleges and universities have embraced technology in many ways, the basic model of higher education in the U.S. has remained intact for generations. In Robert's view, this is unlikely to change soon, despite the shock from COVID-19. What might change, though, is America's long-held reputation as a global leader in higher education. Robert, I want to end with a broader look at the future. What do you think comes next for higher education? I think higher education comes out of this damaged, but still with a fairly strong brand. The financial hit may take a full decade to recover from, both for students and for colleges. But I think there'll also be this real push for that traditional in-person experience because people have missed that. And also the experience that many people have gotten with online education hasn't been a great experience. It's not the same thoughtful online education that you would have if it was designed that way. It's people scrambling to get courses online so students can still get credit. So I think that in the next few years, the market for American higher education will still be strong. But the challenge is colleges will be operating with fewer resources as a result of surviving this pandemic. Does this open up a window for other places in the world to actually compete with U.S. higher education? And here I'm talking about European institutions or even China. Oh, absolutely. More than 200 universities have come out in support of a lawsuit against pandemic curbs on international students. Their plan had been to revoke the visas given to foreign students 
unless they're enrolled in in-person classes. United States has scrapped its latest visa regulation that requires international students to leave the U.S. if they can only take online classes starting this fall. With international students struggling to come to the U.S. this fall, they can choose other options. If, if they're looking for an English-speaking education, Canada, Australia, the United Kingdom, and even in much of Europe, they're offering English language degree programs. And this means that some of the smaller, lesser-known American universities that have tried to recruit international students may struggle. The big names in the U.S. will be fine after this, but we may see a reduction over the next several years of the share of internationally mobile students coming to the U.S. And then the other wild card is whatever happens with U.S.-China relations. And that's something that colleges are watching very closely because Chinese students are a key revenue source. Robert, thank you so much. Sure thing. That was Robert Kelchin, a professor of higher education in Seton Hall University and the author of Higher Education Accountability. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brasalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Whitney Arana and Jonathan Stein.